So welcome everybody to the second episode of our new podcast called Pensions Expert Views. Um, today I'm joined by Christopher Stiles, Jordan Harrison and Maurice Spear. So thank you guys. And we're going to be talking about commercial consolidation and in particular um, those consolidators out there that use third party capital in one way or another. I guess specifically we're going to be talking about pension super funds and we're going to be talking about capital back journey plans. And, and Chris, I, I guess that's probably a good place to start. Could you could you talk about some of the similarities and differences between those two models, please? Yeah, of course. And I think, as you say in your introduction, uh, Nadine, they both involve bringing external capital into pensions without being insurance companies. So that, that's what's exciting about them. And that's the key similarity. The key difference is that uh, a super fund uh, involves transferring assets and liabilities out of the original scheme into the super fund pension scheme where they get consolidated with the assets of other pension schemes. So has the advantages of scale, and it also provides a clean break for the sponsor, which is likely to be attractive. Whereas the, uh, the capital-backed uh, solutions don't do that, but they instead work as investments that are made by the original pension scheme itself. So you don't get that clean break, but the flip side of that, of course, is that the trustees retain access to uh, the original sponsor covenant albeit with a reduced expectation of ever being likely to need it. So uh, that may be attractive for trustees where the employer covenant is actually good and they don't want to uh, lose it by, uh, by transferring to a super fund. So I think in terms of the similarities and differences, they're both using a lot of the same tools, but they're structured differently and therefore doing different things with them. And that means that whichever is the better fit, if either of them is for any particular pension scheme, Will really depend on on the situation that that pension scheme is in. Uh, Maurice, just trying to think about specific situations because I think I think that that would be really helpful. What, what factors should trustees and sponsors be thinking about when assessing the fit of, of these of these types of um, opportunities? Okay, so I, I guess the most appropriate fit will depend on lots of factors that are specific to each scheme and employer. So it's important for trustees and, and sponsors to assess all of their options now and then tailor their journey for them rather than just assuming that a traditional de-risking route such as buyout is the most appropriate option. And in some cases they could end up paying more than they need to or take longer than they need to or risk not getting there at all. So I'm advising my clients to take a step back and reassess existing journey plans or indeed make new journey plans to get to a long-term target. And when doing so, it's important to look at all of the options available rather than just looking at one in isolation. So for example, rather than just looking at whether a capital-backed journey plan is appropriate, take the opportunity to stack that option against the alternative options and land on the option that is most appropriate for your scheme. And to do this, you need to make sure that your advisor isn't conflicted by being advised or being biased towards one particular solution, for example. But in most cases, it comes down to the ability to rely on the employer's covenant. So if the employer's covenant is strong, perhaps there's no need to change what you're currently doing and you can continue to run the scheme as is. But if the employer's covenant is weak, for example, perhaps you're looking at replacing that covenant either through traditional insurance or super funds. And alternatively, if, if, if it's actually where you're looking to enhance the employer's covenant, not replace it, in that case, you might be looking for that capital injection from that third party. Um, so something like the capital back journey plan structure or the insured self-sufficiency product with LNG, for example. 
So increased innovation can certainly mean that there is additional complexity in assessing the potential fit, but ultimately what you're looking for is what outcome is best for your members and what is the most affordable approach from the scheme and company's perspective. And Jordan, just thinking about kind of investment strategy and, and super funds in particular, how might a potential super fund transaction change the approach to setting an investment strategy within a journey plan? Yeah, thanks. I think just to pick up on your, your point, Maurice, actually, this is important for, for trustees and sponsors to review the journey plan because often journey plans are set very much in the ideal world which is we've got a, you know, we've got a long-term liability here. So we've got a long time to get to our end game um, and we can take a low level of investment return over that period to get there. And if the covenant is rock solid for a long time, that is probably still uh, the right answer. Now, where I think a, a potential super fund um, option might impact the journey plan is where, you know, trustees don't want to take lots and lots of investment risk to get to an end game in a short period of time but they don't have the foresight over the covenant maybe out beyond five or ten years and actually the traditional way of doing that is you'd say right i know what my covenant looks like for the next five years maybe the next decade beyond that i'm not sure so i need to get to an insurance transaction in 10 years and the impact of that is either we need more cash to help us on that journey which may or may not be affordable or we need more investment returns so that's when we're thinking about taking a higher level of risk in the investment strategy but what a potential super fund does, if we think, look, we could get to a super fund level of funding in five or six years, that gives you a stepping stone on that journey where you can say, hang on, actually, I don't need to necessarily take that additional risk. I've got a, I've got a great stepping stone on the journey, or that actually might be my end target of, of transacting with a super fund. And so I think trustees stepping back now from their journey plan can say, look, I've got these other options that, that hopefully won't be as costly as a full buyout transaction. And that might give me more flexibility when I'm thinking about the investment strategy as a whole. Thank you. And then flip, flipping on to regulation for a little while, I guess, I guess there's a bit more regulation or clarity of regulation uh, on, the super fund, on the super fund side of, of, of the equation at the moment in terms of these commercial consolidators. And in particular, the pensions regulator, Chris, has talked about the gateway test. Could, could you briefly talk about the gateway test and and, and also talk about how trustees should go about assessing schemes against that test. Yeah, the, the pensions regulator has given us one, one of those tests that sounds simple enough, but uh, requires a bit of work when you come to uh, apply it in practice. So the, there's three limbs to the, the gateway test. First, the scheme can't afford to buy out now. Well, that's straightforward enough because if you could, you would. Second, there's no realistic prospect of being able to buy out in the foreseeable future. And that's a bit more difficult there's, um, because what, what really is foreseeable? There's a rule of thumb that the foreseeable future means the next five years, but that's clearly going to be scheme specific. And the third limb is that the uh, transaction has to improve the likelihood of members receiving full benefits. Uh, and, and you might be a bit flippant about that and say, well, if, if TPR has done a good job when it authorises the super funds, you'd like to think they ought to be able to demonstrate an improved chance of um, receiving full benefits. But uh, yeah, I defer to uh, the actuaries for how you would actually go about modelling that one. Uh, and the key point I think I'd make on the, on, the, on the gateway test is, although it is easy to approach it as a, a modelling exercise, the issue for trustees is really how do they know they're doing the right thing by their members? And how do they protect themselves if things don't work out as planned? And this, I just 
pick up a, a point that uh, Maurice made about it's really important for trustees to weigh up all of the options. And I, I definitely agree with that. And, and so does the pensions regulator, because having more choice is great, but it does bring problems because it creates opportunity costs and it makes the counterfactual analysis more difficult. Even the decision is not as simple as between a, a super fund or a capital backed solution, because the two super funds themselves that are currently in the market are very different and there's likely to be a further entrance as well. So it is a difficult, uh, a difficult question for trustees to approach. And I think the challenge for us as advisors is really take it back to first principles for trustees and help them to understand what their role is and how they best discharge their duties. And really it does come back as the point was made earlier to member outcomes, because the ultimate duty of, of a trustee is to ensure that members get the benefits that the employer intended them to have when the scheme was designed. So it is really that third gateway test of improving the likelihood of members receiving their full benefits is the, uh, the fundamental point. Chris, I'm really pleased that you talked about member outcome, because actually one question I have for you, Maurice, is from a, from a member perspective and thinking about capital back journey plans in particular, what, what, what are the positives and negatives if you're looking from a, a member point of view? Yeah, so uh, cycling back to what Chris said, ultimately what, what trustees and employers need to determine is whether the adoption of that capital back journey plan will increase the chance of being able to pay members benefits in full. And on that positive side, members benefit from an additional capital injection upfront, say an additional 10%, immediately increasing the security of members' benefits. And that upfront capital injection and the new investment strategy adopted targeting higher returns is expected to accelerate the scheme's journey to buyout, helping members get to full security of their benefits with an insurer quickly than the, the current status quo. And if things don't quite go according to plan, there's legal requirements obviously for the capital provider to inject additional capital to protect the scheme's assets against losses. But the investment strategy of the new capital-backed journey plan vehicle, by definition, is of course more risky than the scheme's low-risk investment strategy. And with this increased volatility of plans assets and the event of, in the event of an employer insolvency, there still remain some questions on whether losses would be crystallised or if the capital-backed journey plan structure could run on without the need for an employer. But these are extreme events and would be considered very carefully, obviously, before entering into a capital-backed journey plan. An extension to this, though, which often gets forgotten about and um, but should be considered is what does it feel like to, to be a member under the various endgame scenarios and journeys? So under a capital back journey plan for a member, this doesn't feel or look any different than the status quo through a self-sufficiency route or indeed a buy in where the trustees maintain that direct contact with the member. But with on buyout or through a super fund, the member sees a change in provider and trustees really should test that member experience angle too. And, and just think about capital back journey plans again in, in a little bit more detail. Cle clearly we've talked about the investment strategy um, around that and we've talked about reduced volatility, but, but Jordan, what, what can you go into a bit more detail around the investment implications of, of a capital back journey plan in terms of improving the certainty of outcome and, and in what scenarios um, you think it could be most effective? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think at a high level, you know, a capital-backed journey plan should give all stakeholders a, a better certainty of outcome. I think, I think that should be a kind of high-level principle test when trustees are thinking about entering into it. You know, does this improve our certainty of getting to where we want to get to? Um, and obviously, I don't expect trustees would be entering into these kind of negotiations if that weren't applicable. So then it comes back to 
what does that impact? You know, what is the impact of that time frame on my investment strategy? Does that restrict my ability to invest in certain assets? You know, thinking about how much liquidity am I willing to take on? What kind of time frame am I willing to invest in those liquid assets? Right back to what risks should I hedge out? Now, I would guess that actually most capital partners will also have their own views on investment and how they would like the scheme's investment strategy to run. So trustees are also getting another partner that might have some investment expertise or, or at least some views on investment strategy. So that can be a constraint. But naturally, you know, having guarantees protecting the scheme and additional capital at an absolute basic level gives the trustees the ability to invest in, in assets with a higher certainty of outcome because you've got a bigger investment base to deploy those assets. So, you know, net net, I would expect that, that capital back journey plans should be positive experiences for trustees from an investment perspective. Brilliant. And, and, and so, you know, let, let's say we've gone through a period where both the, the trustees and the sponsor um, have looked at the broad economics and they've looked at member outcomes and, and they feel like there's, there's something there. Chris, I, I just wonder if you can um, talk to us about due diligence and what kind of due diligence uh, trustees and, and, and sponsors underwriting the, the risk at the end of the day should be thinking about uh, for both capital bed journey plans and, and super funds. Yeah, and they will need to do um, certainly financial due diligence on the vehicle itself. So how well capitalized is it? What's the investment strategy, fees, etc. And a lot, and there is a degree of overlap here with uh, what the, they will be providing to the regulator as part of the authorization uh, process. On, on the legal front, uh, trustees will want their advisors to uh, check the constitutional documents. So if it's a super fund, that means the, uh, the the sponsor and the, um, the super fund pension scheme with a capital backed uh, solution. It means checking the constitution of the investment vehicle, where it's based, how it's, how it's set up, uh, etc. And what's going to be really important, certainly to trustees, will be the operation of the buffer. So what are the triggers for releasing funds from the buffer? What are the mechanics? How, how does that work? And how much security do the trustees actually have over the assets? that sit within the buffer. Another key point with a, with a super fund is to make sure that the trustees and the sponsor understand exactly what liabilities the super fund is agreeing to take on and any that it isn't. So they understand whether there is any residual risk that remains with the transferring scheme and therefore ultimately uh, the sponsor post-transaction. And, and last but not least, um, you'd want advisors to check that there are good governance arrangements in place as well. So, so there's, a, there's a fair bit to do, but I think it's, it's important also just to make sure that due diligence doesn't become a blocker to getting deals done. So there does need to be a degree of pragmatism as well. Yeah, completely, completely agree on that last point. Um, Maurice, we, we've talked about, you know, the fact that, you know, super funds are typically off balance sheet solutions and, and capital back journey plans are on balance sheet solutions. I mean, let, let's just project forward and assume that um, a capital back journey plan has, has been executed and, and we're in that process. What, what would happen under a, a future uh, employer insolvency? So I guess like so many issues in the DB pension space it hinges on employer covenant. But we know that predicting employer covenant is incredibly difficult. And we've seen examples of that during the pandemic. So it might be an easy answer if regulation changes to allow schemes to continue in the capital back journey plan without an employer, perhaps convert it into a super fund structure with the associated capital requirements. 
but for now it's likely that without an employer the capital back journey plan structure would be unwind in the event of the employer insolvency with a trustee's payout calculated more or less as a straight line interpolation between the starting assets that was put in and the estimated buyout cost at a target end date. And if this happens when the employee, sorry, when the, the economy in general is struggling and we're seeing other insolvencies a, a across the economy, like what we saw in 2008 or indeed last year, the Capital Back Journey Plan's investment strategy, which relies on companies in general being in a stable state, may well be in a depressed state, reply, re relying on the Capital Back Journey Plan structure, paying out a value at a time when it simply can't afford to do so. So it's not a straightforward one and trustees need to be able to put some objectivity in this and the risk needs to be weighed up against the status quo scenario. So the likely state that the scheme's assets would be in if faced with a depressed economy in the current situation. So thanks for that, Maurice. And it looks really, really nicely into the question I was going to ask Jordan. That's about the fundamental investment strategies that sit below um, both the super fund and capital back journey plans. I mean, how much do trustees and sponsors really care about those underlying investment strategies? I mean, it's a really difficult question. And, and as you know, it's one I had a hand in drafting. I, I do wonder why one would ask a question that maybe you don't know the answer to. But I think it's an important discussion topic. So I'm interested in the other speaker's views here. At a fundamental level, I guess it's possible to say, if trustees get the right guarantees and you're satisfied those guarantees are good, they're money good, and it improves your members' likely outcomes, you don't need to look any further. You've done your correct due diligence and, and that's, that's the, the end of your responsibility as a trustee. I think I maybe start to challenge that and this is why I'm interested in what others think because trustees don't apply that lens to typical investment decisions. If you're thinking about a new asset class or a new fund manager, trustees put a lot of effort into understanding the responsible investment angles and the, and the sustainability angles of those partners and those investments. And so should trustees be applying the same kind of, of uh, RI or sustainability lens to these transactions? I think they probably should. Yeah, I mean, I think for capital back journey plans in particular, um, th there is a need to understand the inve underlying investment strategy because effectively trustees and, and sponsors will want to ensure that the guarantees that are being promised and the capital backing those guarantees will support the risk in, in those underlying investment strategies. So I think in that situation it probably is important because that's where the value is the value is in the guarantees and the guarantees have to be proportional to the risk um in terms of the super funds i think we probably have to rely more on regulation um and clearly there's a there's, there's a lack of control there because it isn't an, a pure investment play so um it, it might be slightly different for a from a for, for a super fund yeah I, i'd agree with with, with that nadim and i i like the point about you know, focus on where, where the value is and although um, lawyers have a reputation for always focusing on the negative, and I don't want to cement that, but you do have to consider in, in a downside, if everything is going wrong, is the value that you're actually relying on going to be there when you need it? So I think having uh, considered that point is certainly one that uh, is worth doing. And just to add, I mean, that, that is the key point, isn't it? It's whenever things is going wrong, so that, that employer insolvency event that I, that I talked about there, where worst case scenario, everything's in a depressed state, can you get the value of those assets at the point in which you need them? I guess that that's the key um, part from a, a member security perspective for me. Thank you. And I guess my final question, we, we've talked about the, the employer insolvency situation uh, a few times during this conversation. 
the big question, I guess, which I'm going to ask Chris about is, are super funds the answer? As a, in, a, in an insolvency situation, are those off-balance sheet consolidators the, the trustee's answer to, to, to that problem? They won't always be the answer, but they're certainly an attractive option in this space, I think I would say to that. And in particular, the, uh, the spaces for schemes that have got assets that are sufficient to be able to buy more than PPF level benefits, but where there would be a material cut to benefits if they were forced to buy out with an insurer. And I think those PPF plus cases are where we strongly expect the first super fund deals to be struck particularly if you've got sufficient assets to secure full benefits with a super fund as distinct to taking a cut to benefits with an insurer. Now, um, the regulator still expects uh, trustees to consider all the options as we were, uh, as we were discussing earlier, but, um, and, would, and expects trustees to take into account the fact that super funds don't provide the same level of protection as insurance companies do. But my challenge to that would be to say, well, they don't need to. They're still regulated entities as occupational pension schemes. So you need to go through the process of checking that you, uh, you satisfy uh, the various tests. But that does definitely feel like a space where, where super funds have got uh, a very compelling market. If, where it becomes slightly more difficult is if the scheme doesn't even have sufficient assets in order to secure full benefits in a super fund. Uh, and there are some additional legal hurdles to uh, in, in that situation. So I think in, to answer your question in summary, super funds have helped with the uh, insolvency scenario and PPF plus cases, but there's still some room for some further innovation and developments in the market. They can provide a, a broader solution to a wider range of circumstances. Completely agree with all that, Chris. And I think, um, you know, that's a further developments and, and it all comes down to member outcomes, I think, you know, if, if we can look at some analysis, if we can, we can do the modelling, which suggests that actually the choice that trustees have, have picked are likely to lead to better member outcomes, either better security or, or, or benefits that are close to 100%, then, then it feels like there's absolutely uh, more to be done in that space. Well, listen, thank you to, to all three of you, Chris, Jordan, Maurice, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on this podcast episode um, and to everyone watching we'll see you in a month's time take care